X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Wednesday, April 7th. Today, back in the day, on April 7th, 1890, the Portland Hotel opened. We know and love it as Pioneer Square, but back in the 1800s, the block on Southwest 6th and Morrison was home to the Portland Hotel. Built in the style of a Queen Anne Chateau, it was an ornate and upscale locale for politicians, business leaders, and celebrated social figures. The project was initiated by railroad magnate Henry Villard in 1879, but financial troubles stalled its construction. When construction was finished, the hotel became became the center of upper-class life in Portland. The hotel has 326 rooms on eight floors, as well as a ballroom, a bar, parlors and sitting rooms, and several dining rooms. However, by the 1950s, the Portland Hotel had fallen out of style and into disarray. And so, in 1951, the hotel was demolished and paved for parking space. Today, back in the day, on April 7, 1957, the last of New York City's streetcars was retired. 125 years earlier, before subways and buses, the New York City trolley was the first foray into mass transit. It was a horse-drawn bus on steel tracks that had been set into the city's streets. But the buses were slow, and there were health concerns after the equine influenza outbreak of 1872. By 1883, New York's first steam-powered cable car took over the tracks, and after that, in 1909, the first electric trolley. Wherever the trolley went, economic development and jobs followed. Mass transit made living in a city convenient, and it helped build community. Brooklyn's baseball team even got their name from it because fans had to dodge the streetcars on their way to the stadium. In fact, the team's original name was the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers, although it was later shortened. By the time the 1920s rolled around, automobile manufacturers had new ideas about what city life should look like. They deliberately worked to undermine city trolleys and edge out the competition. Beginning in 1926, General Motors worked to buy streetcar systems and replace trolleys with private cars. By 1957, New York's streets had changed and left streetcars behind. So, on April 7, 1957, the New York City trolley carried its last passengers. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. And we have an interview with Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Inverness Jail is facing a federal lawsuit over its COVID outbreak. A class action lawsuit was filed against Multnomah County Inverness Jail on Monday. The suit was filed by 15 individuals who are currently or formerly incarcerated at the jail. All of them have tested positive for COVID-19. They are accusing Inverness Jail staff and Multnomah County Sheriff Mike Reese of negligence, saying they failed to mitigate the spread of the virus. This follows an outbreak at Inverness Jail earlier this year. In February, it was reported that 192 people in custody at Inverness had tested positive for the virus. 29 staffers had also tested positive. According to the plaintiffs, quote, the reason for the outbreak is not a mystery. 
They explain, quote, defendants failure to require or enforce social distancing, PPE, increased testing, or other precautions in jails known to slow the spread of COVID-19 placed plaintiffs at imminent risk of contracting COVID-19. Allegedly, people in custody at Inverness were told they did not need to wear a mask when preparing food for other inmates in the kitchen. Furthermore, those working in the kitchen were required to continue preparing food after a known outbreak in their dorm. In addition to negligence, the lawsuit accuses the jail of violating the 8th and 14th Amendments. It's time for your daily dose of data. According to the Oregon Health Authority, there were 544 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday and 33 new deaths. Yesterday, Governor Kate Brown announced that all Oregonians over the age of 16 will become eligible for the vaccine by April 19th. This is almost two weeks sooner than the previous date announced by state officials, May 1st. According to Governor Brown, Oregon passed the threshold yesterday of 2 million vaccine doses administered. Earlier this week, eligibility was opened up to frontline workers and adults living with them. However, Governor Brown also warned that the virus is still spreading at concerning rates in communities across the state. Oregon is one of many states that has seen an uptick in new infections recently, eliciting fears that COVID's fourth wave is beginning. The governor urged, quote, we must move as quickly as possible to get more shots in arms. You can find out more information on the Oregon Health Authority website. You can also call 211 locally for more information. The Portland Farmers Market has a new executive director. Katie Kolker will step into the position replacing Trudy Tolliver after 10 years. Kolker founded the Portland Fruit Tree Project. Most recently, she served as the executive director of Families for Climate. According to a press release, her expertise lies in urban agriculture, food equity, and climate justice. In a statement, Kolker said, quote, I look forward to continuing the efforts of the market staff in expanding access to fresh, local, and nutritious food and providing more pathways for BIPOC vendors to start up their own successful businesses via the market. The Portland Farmers Market is a nonprofit that operates five Portland area markets. In addition to the year-round market at Portland State, it operates seasonal markets at Lentz, King, Kenton, and Shemansky Park. The Oregon State Senate expanded the list of those who should report child abuse and human trafficking. Senate Bill 515 requires restaurant and bar workers to speak up if they have reason to suspect human trafficking or unlawful employment of a minor. Senate Bill 535 makes hoteliers mandatory reporters of child abuse. The bill also requires computer tech workers to immediately report any child pornography they find on devices or systems they're working on. State Minority Leader Fred Girod spoke optimistically of the new legislation, saying, Quote, by all of us taking a little responsibility for the most vulnerable in our communities, we can make a difference. Both bills passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Only Dallas Heard, a Republican out of Roseburg, voted no for both laws. Brian Boquist, an independent from Dallas, also voted no for 535. The bills 
Now head over to the house for consideration. Terwilliger Parkway has made it onto the National Register of Historic Places. And it's been a long time coming, according to Friends of Terwilliger, a volunteer organization that is dedicated to preserving the parkway. They say the Portland, Park, the Portland Parks Bureau began nominating some of the older parks around town back in 1985, but they never finished the process with the National Parks Service. To get included on the register, the park first had to be reviewed by the Portland Historical Landmarks Commission, then the State Historical Preservation Office, before finally the National Park Service. The listing includes 115 acres of the original park, which opened in 1914. Designs for the park began in 1903 in conjunction with plans for the Lewis and Clark Exposition in 1905. The original plans for the park were designed by John C. Olmsted of Olmsted Brothers Landscape Architects. Their father, Frederick Law Olmsted, is best known for designing Central Park in New York City. And finally, some good news. It looks like there might be some outdoor festivals happening this summer on the downtown waterfront. The lot at Zydell Yards announced yesterday it will hold the Waterfront Blues Festival, Portland Pride, and a few other events this spring and summer. The lot is a socially distanced event venue. It will be limited to 270 people at first. Once on the grounds, attendees will be grouped into socially distant seating pods. The pods will be sectioned off by small three-sided picket fencing. Masks will be required outside of their pods, and they'll regulate how many people are coming in and out in phases based on crowding. They'll also have a litany of other precautions, including touchless ticketing and regularly sanitized bathrooms. Portland Pride is scheduled for June, and the Waterfront Blues Fest is scheduled for July 2nd through the 5th. There will also be a film and music series put on by the Hollywood Theater in May and June, and another summer music festival in August featuring local musicians. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. That's right. Up next, we have Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots, on being radically humble. Radical humility? Here's Emily with X-Ray's Andy Lindbergh and Julia Oppenheimer. So you're listening to X-Ray in the Morning with me, Andy Lindbergh, and my friend Julia Oppenheimer. Uh, What does it mean to be humble in a world of digital shouting, curated social media presences, and constant financial hustle? Could being humble be a radical project? Uh, Rebecca Mudrak and Jamie Vanderbroek think so. In this week's edition of Street Roots, managing editor Emily Green uh, interviewed Rebecca Mandrak and her about her new book, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. Emily is here to tell us more about that interview and what it means to be radically humble in today's age of ego. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. What is radical humility? So there are so many definitions of humility, right? And I think a lot of those um, different ideas are explored among the essays in this book. Uh, But one that I think kind of defines what's at the essence of this book is um, just this idea that we all uh, kind of exist in the center of our own galaxies, right? Our own beliefs, 
values and desires are at the forefront of our mind because, you know, they're us. We're seeing them every day. <laughs> it's in my so, head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, radical humility is kind of this idea of freeing yourself from that and being able to look, uh, you know, kind of see the forest from the trees, that your own universe is just one among billions of different perspectives that are all equally important. So um, as Rebecca Modrak said during the interview, and I, I like this because it really sums it up, humility is a state of awareness that frees us from centering ourselves. Hmm. What, uh, when reading this book, was there a particular essay that resonated with you that you could uh, highlight for us? Well, you know, as a journalist, uh, Lynette Clementson's uh, essay really resonated with me. She worked at NPR, Newsweek, and the New York Times, um, starting back in the 90s before we had social media and all these other things that we're, you know, virtually shouting on now. Mm -hmm. And she really pointed out, you know, that the need for self-promotion to reach key audiences across all these different platforms really creates kind of a difficult balancing act for reporters who are, you know, supposed to be um, the listeners kind of in the background, not having an opinion. Um, and this pace and pressure of journalism, she wrote, can really leave reporters like one impulsive tweet away from credibility on a daily basis. And she just emphasized that, you know, through all these pressures, it's just so important to hold on to what you value. And I think so many of the essays in this book for me personally really um, made me kind of look at my core values and the ways that my ego can sometimes get in the way of really living up to them. And I think a lot mm. of people probably find themselves in that position, you know, these days with so much emphasis being placed on self-promotion and visibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would guess as a, as a journalist, Emily, you, you get to experience humility a lot because you're, your job is to ask questions and not not really make it about yourself. Do you feel like this concept of radical humility has changed the way you approach your your work in journalism? As far as you know, conducting interviews, I think that it, it really aligns with you know the way that journalists do their work. Um, it is about listening and understanding the world through other people's stories. Um, you know what really resonated with me actually was just the uh, different ways humility can play a role in parenting that hadn't really stood out to me before. Um, if your child's asking all these questions, you know, you try to be the all-knowing adult to explain everything, um, but you don't really know all the answers, and, and you can teach your child to be curious, um, you know, just as you should be. And one little p nugget of advice I liked from one of the essays in this book was, say, for example, you're a white parent and your child is asking you about the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, rather than trying to explain all the dynamics of systemic racism, you could say, you know, I don't fully understand it either. Let's go find a book written by a black American and we can learn about it together. Mm -hmm. I think that is really powerful to admit something we're not very good in this culture of doing is admitting when you don't know something and and then that's okay. And it's good to educate yourself and to learn more. Do you think that personal practice of humility can help with political projects? 
Um, I think we saw a really good example of how humility might have um, played a better role over the last four years from the White House, right? And um, that was something that actually inspired the editors of this book to look at humility. Um, it was back around 2016 and Donald Trump's candidacy when they started really thinking about this idea of, you know, where in society does humility play a role? And, and we've seen, you know, what the lack of humility can result in, right? Um, a political leader who doesn't listen to anyone that has a different viewpoint, who will not admit or apologize when they are wrong. Um, and it could be really destructive in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's, uh, also a leader who, who didn't even ask for advice from his advisors. <laughs> Talk about lack of humility. <laughs> this is Julia Oppenheimer and Andy Lindbergh. We're speaking with Emily Green from Street Roots. Uh, what do you think are some of the factors that people from that keep people from experiencing and practicing radical humility or just humility in general? You know, I think it's a cultural thing. And um, I've noticed the same thing that Rebecca Modrak noticed um, coming more prevalent just in these different circles of, you know, academics, artists, and I would say in journalism and the nonprofit world, which, you know, we exist in as well, it's just, you know, how visible are you? Have a, you know, Twitter presence, um, you know, make sure everybody knows who you are and why you're important. And, you know, at, at some point the line gets crossed from, um, you know, placing value in actual accomplishments into placing value into who can you know, shout the loudest, um, you know, it's almost like a competitive caring <laughs> um, <laughs> culture that's going on in some respects, you know, but at what point are we stepping back and, you know, really listening and hearing and understanding each other, you know, or are we just waiting to try to make each other understand us, you know, and what we think? There's, there's also just the the idea of, you know, ways that we can. You know, we we were talking earlier in the show um, with uh, Ross Gay about the idea of, of vulnerability, and you know it seems like. This idea of radical humility is is you know uh, on that same page. Um, about you know being willing to admit I I don't know everything that I need to know, um, being willing to ask for help, um, which uh, you know is one of the themes that that I think has come up for a lot of people during the pandemic. That um, you know there are many more people have depended on the social safety net uh, and have recognized how shoddy it is. Um, you know there's. Uh, how how does this concept of, of radical humility tie into a society trying to learn how to better take care of one another? You know, I'm, I think you're so right that it ties in closely with vulnerability. And I think the pandemic just removed, just by pressing pause on that daily grind, I think for some people it just really put the focus on things that matter most like, you know, 
family, our society, you know, how are we taking care of each other and, and seeing how devastating this pandemic has been for other communities. I think just this kind of stepping back and being able to see that has made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really been a year of self-reflection yeah. and a lot of time to like go within and think about what's important and um as you've been saying, humility is something that we really have not ever prioritized in America because a lot of it is about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and being the best you can and standing out in the crowd. And um, I love this idea of like just just letting things happen without you and like mm-hmm. being there but not being the the one in the front or, you know, saying you don't know and asking for help and kind of normalizing that normalizing humility mm-hmm. in the 21st 21st century you know <laughs> what a difference it could make right <laughs> yeah like a world leader who says i don't know how to do that can you help me or even just you know a restaurant manager or mm-hmm. an editor at a newspaper like people being able to admit that maybe they don't have all the answers or maybe they don't they're not perfect at their job and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I was literally reading yesterday in the Atlantic an article about how um, we've forgotten about the nervous breakdown and that used to be like a legitimate excuse for taking a, a step back saying like, oh, I'm having I'm having a nervous breakdown, which didn't mean you had an, a medical issue or a long-term mental illness. It just meant you needed a break and that a couple years ago Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got a whole bunch of flack when she finished campaigning and she said I'm taking a personal day and the you know the far right went crazy like how you haven't even started your job yet and you're already taking a personal day but i think that that ties into like it's okay to be humble and to say like i need a break mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know thoughts on that it's like we're all creating the illusion that, you know, we have no flaws. We can just keep going, that we're almost like these super workers. And yeah. it just puts pressure on each other and ourselves. And I think it's, it kind of has gotten to a point in this country where it was it was just insane, right? And the pandemic really pulled the pulled back the curtain and, and we're like, you know, what what? For what, right? Why? Why? Why are we living this way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. And that you know, it used to be that that uh, you know the nervous breakdown was was only allowable for you know nebbish people who lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and and the rest of us just had to to kind of carry on. Um, you know, I, I guess the the to to broaden things out a bit is. Um, you know what? What are the implications for, you know, how radical humility can be something for transforming our society for the better? You know what? What you know? What are the what are the ways that you know? How do we? I, I love this this idea of, of and that that Street Roots is is sharing this concept and and um, you know kind of laying this this buffet of of ideas out and out in front of us how do we how do we take it into ourselves and and apply it um if we want to be uh you know helping the helping the our community you know one um piece of advice that kind of ran through the book was you know not just not only listening but listening to people you disagree with 
Um, and, that, and that can go for, you know, any political ideology. Um, if you are a liberal person who voted against Trump, you know, there is value in listening to an avid Trump supporter. Um, you, and this was, you know, how Rebecca Modrock answered this question for me is like, you know, should we listen to an avid Trump supporter? <laughs> you know, there's conspiracy theories and all this misinformation. You know, and she explained at the at the heart of it, though, there there's uh, experiences and sets of values and beliefs that um, and that led a person to think that way. And, and there is something to be learned from understanding, you know, another person's perspective. Um, and on the flip side of that, I think so much of what we do at Street Roots is we try to tell the stories of people who you know, are living outside, people who um, came to our country to escape, you know, brutality elsewhere, um, and trying to put a face on, you know, these descriptors, you know, immigrant, mm -hmm. homeless, um, you know, criminal, even to, to try to show that, you know, there's humanity here. And, you know, it's up to us to try to, you know, put our biases aside and, and see the humanity um, in each other's experiences. That is very well said, Emily. Yeah. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, is there any other um, articles from this week's Street Roots you want to plug real quick? Yes, I think we have a great edition of the paper that hits the streets this morning. You know, do look for your favorite neighborhood Street Roots vendor and get a copy um, this is our cover stories on radical humility, but we have a lot of great stories about what's happening in the legislative session. There are some bills that will really help um, life for people living outside. One that would give uh, people experiencing homelessness the ability to get a photo ID for free. Um, it sounds like the most simple thing, but it is such a huge barrier for folks. Um, who are unable to get it because you need an ID to get all kinds of services, to get housing, to get food benefits. Uh, so that's one bill that we're following that could make a big difference. Um, we also have a new columnist, Galo Van. He is an incarcerated individual who is writing about the prison system from the inside for us. And he wrote a story this week that also highlights some bills that would make a big difference for people who are incarcerated in our state including setting up an office of uh, ombudsman for prisoners so that they have a more effective way of filing grievances and complaints, something that's very difficult to do from the inside. So I encourage people to pick up a copy and take a look at these bills. Great. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. That was Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots. Uh, the book we were discussing was Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. You can pick up a copy of Street Roots from your local vendor around town. Thanks to Emily for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.